Why don't we stand together just for a moment? Going to dismiss the Sunday school classes and let the children go to their area. And going to go to the word of the Lord as they head out. But I'm not going to read all of my text today. Last week, of course, started a series on Jonah and preached from three verses. This week, it's over 20, so I'm not going to read all of that, but I will cover all of that through the process. And I'm going to just read two verses, and I don't know that we'll be able to get those both on the screen because they're the bookends of the story or the passage that we're going to preach. But Jonah chapter 1, verse number 4 says, But the Lord sent out a great wind on the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship was about to be broken up. And then the last verse of chapter 2. So the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto a dry land. The Lord sent a great wind, and the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. And so today I'm going to preach for just a little bit from this story, and the title is this, When You Tell God No. When You Tell God No. God bless you. You may be seated today. Kids learn at an early age to say no. If you have kids, if you've been around kids, you know that you you don't have to teach them how to say no. They just automatically figure that out. And in fact, some kids, they, they get so captivated by saying no that they say no even when they mean yes. Maybe no is just an easier word to say in English at least and and so they, they will tell you no when they don't want something, and then they'll tell you no when they do want something, and they just say no all the time. And So then we as parents have to figure out how do we respond to that. How do we deal with a child that is telling us no, that is looking in our face and telling us a blatant, disobedient no. I'm not going to do what you tell me. But it's, it's interesting that those same kids, at times they grow up, and many of them, they struggle to tell other people no. That you ask them to do something and they don't want to do it, but they will say yes because they learn early on that if I say no, then they may not like me or they may not accept me or if I don't do everything they want me to do. And so these same kids that will tell you no for everything grow up and then they, they'll now say yes to everything, even when they shouldn't say. Parents, as I mentioned, they, they have to learn how to deal with that how do you discipline a child that says no? And then parents also get the sometimes unenviable task of having to tell their children no. That when you want to say yes, you want to give in, you want to do what your child wants, they're asking for something. They're asking for another serving of ice cream. And you know it's not good for them, and you have to say no. And they explain to you how good it is and how, how tasty it is and how they need it. And I would just tell you, I don't know that anybody's ever needed ice cream, but I, I sure have eaten a lot in my lifetime, and, and I like ice cream and all kinds of things. But, but we have to learn to say no. I, I looked for the clip. I, I couldn't find the specific one I was wanting. Comedian Tim Hawkins has a number of parenting things that he does in his uh, comedy routines. He's a, he's a Christian comedian, 
sometimes a little edgy, but he's a Christian comedian. And he, he does this whole deal where he's talking about saying no to his kids and coming up with all kinds of created, creative ways to say no. Like, Dad, can I have this? ABC, no. And just, you know, old McDonald had a farm, E-I-E-I, no, you can't have that. And all kinds of things, and, and of course, I'm not very funny, but, but trust me, if you find it out there, Tim Hawkins, it's worth your time, learning how to say no. So if we, we say no a lot. As, as kids, we have to say no, and as, as adults, we have to say no to our kids and to other things. If you're going to be healthy, you've got to say no to some things. You've got to say no to some people because people will take advantage of you if you're not careful. They will ask you to do all number of things that you just don't have the time and the energy to do, and so you have to learn to say no. But what happens when we tell God no? What does God do when we tell him no? Because people oftentimes, they will tell God no. They will say, God, I don't want to do this. Or maybe they don't say no. They just don't do what it is that, that he tells them to do. And so God has a decision to make. If God could make decisions, and he does make decisions, but, but if, if you put him in a situation where he has to make a decision, I can narrow it down to a, a few things. He could ignore your no. He just let you go on your way, let you do what you want to do. He can ignore that. He could judge your no and issue judgment because you have told him no, or, or maybe he will correct you when you say no or when you do things that God doesn't want you to do or when you don't do things that God does want you to do. Many people feel that God is looking to judge and he's looking to hammer them I had a conversation with a, a lady, oh, it's been probably close to a year and a half ago now. Turns out that she was an atheist. And she was an atheist. I, I talked to her and had some, uh, an extended conversation. She had one, at one time been a Christian, at least a Christian in name only. And we talked about that a number of weeks ago. But, but she had been a, a Christian and... Somewhere in the process, she got the idea that God was like an old white-haired man just sitting there and looking and waiting on her to mess up so that he could judge her when she fell. When she would fail or when she would do something that she shouldn't do, she, she had the perception that God was looking to just judge. He wasn't looking to to restore. He wasn't looking to correct and go, hey, you can do this better or you can do this different. He wasn't looking to say, hey, I'm still with you. I still love you. I still care for you. But he was looking to judge her. And she said, I don't need a God who's going to just look for opportunities to judge me. I, I, I want something else. So I decided that there is no God. Maybe there is a difference between messing up or blatant disobedience I don't really know that I could tell you how God feels about that. But I, I do know this, that he is a God who is, first of all, a God of restoration. He is a God of correction. He is not a God who is going to look to judge you because you fail or because you say no. That he's not looking to, to chastise you, and he's not just waiting on you to mess up so he can correct you, in a, or discipline you, rather, I should say. But he is looking that when you mess up and when you make mistakes, he's looking to pick you up and bring you back into relationship with him to keep you close to him. Even human parents, I, if you were walking around 
just looking over your child's shoulder, hoping that they would make a mistake so you could get on to them. I'm not sure that I would want you as a parent. But, but I, I would look for a parent that, hey, yeah, you messed up, and we're not just going to ignore that. We're going to not act like it didn't happen. We're going to enable you and equip you to not do it again and to make sure that you're still in relationship. You told me no, but I still want you to be in relationship. I still love you. And what I would tell you is this, that God is unwilling to just let us walk away. That we can, we can look at God and say, God, I'm not going to do what you want, but he's not just going, okay, that's fine. Good to know you. That is not the God that you and I serve. The story of Jonah is a classic example of God's restoration impulse of his desire to bring people into relationship with him when they tell him no and when they turn their back on him last time we left jonah on a boat heading to tarshish god had told him to go to nineveh and he said i'm not going to do that don't want to do that don't like those people i hate those people i'm not telling them and so i think i'll take a vacation in tarshish and so he goes and he gets on a boat in Joppa, and he heads to Tarshish as far away across the Mediterranean as he could get from Israel. And now God is in the position of, I've got to do something because Jonah has told me no. Jonah has said no. And so I'm going to look at five things that God does in this passage that I think are illustrative of his care for us, of his concern for us, and what he does instead of just letting us walk away, or in Jonah's case, and just letting him sail away to another land. Starts with his corrective action. It says, but the Lord sent out a great wind on the sea. This is not minor. God, God could, he, he could do a lot of things. He has options. God's not limited. If there's an option out there, God knows about it. He could poke a hole in the boat right there in the harbor, and it doesn't even get out of sight, and he could stop Jonah right there. He could have the people that Jonah's buying a ticket from tell him no. He could do a lot of different things, but God, he, he doesn't do things small. He does things in a big way. He lets Jonah get on the boat. He lets him get out to sea. He's a far away from shore, no land in sight. And then he's like, okay, now watch this. And he sends a great wind on the sea. And there was a mighty tempest on the sea so that the ship was about to be broken up. He's like, Jonah, you've told me no. Watch the big splash that I can make. And he sends this big wind, this big storm. So much so that the sea or the ship is about to be broken up. But here's the deal. He doesn't want to sink the ship. He could sink the ship. But he wants to get Jonah's attention, and so he sends a great storm to get his attention. He sends corrective action. And I would tell you that a lot, when, when you and I tell God no, and we walk on our way, and we say, I'm not going to do that, I'm not going to commit to that, I'm not going to live this way, I'm not going to do those things that I feel your Spirit prompted me to do, he sends corrective action. He's not sending judgment. He's not trying to wipe you out. He's not trying to kill you. He's trying to get you in a, pos a position where you will turn back to Him, where you will recognize that His way is better than your way. That to do what He wants you to do is better than for you to do what you want to do. He sends corrective 
action. His purpose is not to destroy, but to restore. And in essence, what he's doing with his corrective action is he's bringing Jonah to another point of decision. He's telling Jonah, it's without even using any words, you've got to make a decision. Are you going to keep fleeing from me, or are you going to stop? I'm glad that God sends corrective action, that He doesn't just let us go on our way. There have been too many times to count where I, I've told God no, I've, or I've delayed giving God an answer, or I've just ignored, may not say no, but I ignored what He said. It's called passive-aggressive. I'm not going to tell you no, I'm just not going to do it. I'm not going to be blatant enough to say, no, God, I don't want to do that. I'm just going to dilly-dally around, and I'm going to drag my feet, and I'm going to not go and do what you want me to do. It's not in my notes. I'll tell you a quick story. I was playing the drums in a service, and, and I was at the time I was teaching the youth class uh, at a church there in Blue Springs. This is before I was married. And, I, and I, may have, I may have used this illustration, I don't know. And the drums we had there had a nice cage around them, you know, to protect everybody from the drummer. And I don't know why they cage drummers. Actually, I do. I mean, the drums, without, unless they're electronic like these, I mean, they're loud, they're, they're noisy. So I'm sitting, in, in, it's a small church. There's me and an organ player. That's it. Two musicians, one singer. Kind of like what we had today. And by the way, let me say thank you so much, Hannah, for being with us today and leading in worship. Why don't we give her a hand? She's heading back to college on Thursday, and so we're glad she was able to be here. Otherwise, you'd have had to hear me sing, and uh, you'd have left already. So, But I'm sitting on the drums, and there was somebody out in the audience, and I, I felt like God told me to get up and go pray with them. And I'm sitting there going, that couldn't have been God. Because you can't have church without drums. If I get up off the drums in the middle of a song, everybody's going to be watching me. They're going to be wanting to know, what is this guy doing? And so, I didn't just tell God no. I, I, at first, I was like, nah, I can't be God. But you know how God is. He, he doesn't just leave you alone. So he kept nudging me. like. But I, but I convinced myself that it would be a distraction to the service to get up in the middle of a song and do what it was that God told me to do. But ultimately, I didn't do it. I didn't get off the drums. We, we ended the, the worship portion of the service, went downstairs in the basement to teach the, the youth class. And... I actually didn't end up teaching that day. We ended up going straight into a prayer meeting that lasted longer than the service upstairs and the parents were coming down and wondering what was going on. And here's the deal. What we were doing down in the Sunday school room was what God wanted to do in the main service, but I, I chose to ignore His voice. I chose to convince myself He wasn't really wanting me to do that, that, that maybe there would be a lull in the service and then I could go and do what he wanted me to do, but he kept at it. And he, and he didn't kick me out. He didn't say, you didn't listen to me and, and boot me out. No, but he, he let me learn that when he speaks, 
there's a timing involved and there's a responsibility involved and that he wants me to be in relationship with him. And at times when we disobey, he brings corrective action. But if we ignore his corrective action, he also at times will reveal the wrong. That what we think is done in secret, God will make known publicly. And so here's Jonah. He he gets on the boat. He goes down. He goes to sleep. And then there's this great storm comes and he's still sleeping away. Doesn't have a care in the world. He's, He's not concerned that he has disobeyed God. It doesn't bother him. He's just sleeping away in the boat. But, but the rest of the people on the boat, the sailors, they're, they're afraid. They know that there's something different about this storm. They can't combat the storm. They're not sure that they're going to survive the storm. And so they're concerned, and they find Jonah sleeping. It's like, Jonah, what are you? And I don't even know if they called him by name. They're like, what are you doing sleeping? Get up here and help. Do something. He says, in fact, what they said was, call on your God. But they didn't know who Jonah's God was. And you have to understand, in this particular time, you, everybody had a God. There were no atheists in Jonah's day. It's only a matter of which God they served. Now, you also need to understand that they were gods in name only. They weren't true gods, but they would worship idols, or they would worship other spirits as God, but they weren't really God. There's only one true God, but... They don't know the one true God, so they say to Jonah, hey, you pray to your God, whoever that may be, and hopefully we'll get safe. We'll be saved in the middle of this. And So they, the storm keeps going on, and they realize that it's supernatural in origin. They're like, there's something different about this storm. It's not a normal storm. And so they say, let's cast lots. And see who is the one responsible for this trouble. Let's find out which of the people on this ship, which of their gods is causing this this storm to come at sea. Let's see who's the one responsible. So they cast lots. Casting of lots, it's a typical practice you see in the Bible. They cast lots when it came to Achan and his disobedience there at Jericho. When he stole the Babylonian garment and he stole the the money, and he buried it in his, his tent. They cast lots, and, and I don't say that we should cast lots today, but God was working through the casting of their lots. And for the most part, what this would consist of is it would be two stones, and they would be colored. And they would toss the stones frequently at, towards somebody, and if they came up with the non-colored side, then that, this, this person's okay, it's not their fault, or... They would toss it, and if only one piece came, one side came up colored, no big deal. Kind of like casting dice. But if they threw the stones at you, and both sides came up with the painted side of the rocks, then they would know, hey, it's you. You're the one that's the problem here. And, and, and while these people are serving other gods, and, and I would think that pro- most of the time it's probably just chance. That you just... They roll the stones at you, and if it comes up colored, you're just in trouble, whether you did it or not. You just are the one responsible. But in this case, at least, the God who sent the storm is superintending this process, and the the lot falls to Jonah. And they look at Jonah and say, what did you do? Who are you, and who is your God that he is doing all of this 
to us. Jonah just trying to hide on the ship. I'm going to Tarshish. I want to be away from the presence of God. But God doesn't let him get away with it that easy. But he reveals his wrong. And he uses heathen and pagan people to bring that wrong to light. So now Jonah knows what they know it's me. And so he confesses. And he says this, and I, and I find this extraordinarily interesting. He says he is a Hebrew that fears Yahweh. Now, Yahweh, you've probably heard me say this, it is the, the Hebrew name for God. It is the name that God gives himself. In more modern times, they've pronounced it Jehovah after a German pronunciation, but the Jews would say Yahweh or Yahweh, depending on how they inflect the W there. But he says, I'm a a Jew, I'm a Hebrew, and I fear Yahweh. And what I find fascinating about that is he says, I fear God, except I just told him no. I just, this God that I fear and I respect and, and I reverence, I just told him no, I'm not going to do what you want me to do. And because of my disobedience, then he sent this storm. And Jonah recognizes, yep, this is, this is a divine storm. It is God who has done this. It is Yahweh who has sent this storm. And he also, he's told me the reason why he did it is because I have fled from the presence of God. I've told him no, and I'm fleeing from his presence where he was speaking to me. And now I'm running away, and I don't want to listen The Bible says they knew that he fled from the presence of God because he told them. Ultimately, it is this. God will not let us get away without corrective action. That God will not just let us go on our merry way, but his word says, be sure your sins will find you out. He says that which is done in secret will be revealed in public. That when you do something and you think nobody else knows, God will reveal it. Not because He's looking to embarrass you. Not because He's looking to make an example of you, but he, because He loves you. And He wants to bring you back into relationship with Him. And so if you don't do it with His first corrective action, He will reveal the wrong so that others know and they can then weigh in. And these soldiers, or these sailors rather, they, they didn't want to punished Jonah they they did everything that they could in fact they said how can we stop the storm what can we do and and Jonah says there's only one option throw me over the side there's nothing you can do to get yourself out of my mess except get rid of me but the Bible tells us that they they didn't they didn't want to do that They were more noble than Jonah, and they said, we're not going to throw you overboard if we can help it. So they did everything in their power to row themselves to shore. But the Bible says, when they tried to do that, that God increased the storm. What that tells me is this, that God will not allow others to stop His corrective process. You get yourself in a mess, I've, I've seen this numerous times. I've probably been the recipient of this. You get yourself in a mess because of your disobedience or because you're walking away from God or whatever. 
And God is, is at work in trying to bring you back to Him, and other people want to step in, and they want to say, well, let me help you. you. You lost your job, and you lost this, and well, here, let me just take care of you. But if you do that, all, if it's God that's at work in that, all you're doing is throwing your money away too, because God is not going to allow people to stop His process. Because if He allows people to stop His process, guess what? His, his purpose is never accomplished of bringing you back into relationship. It's never accomplished if people stop his process. And so he increased the storm even more. And when he did, the, the sailors realized they couldn't do anything about it. So they said, I guess we better pray, Jonah, to your God. And so they prayed to the God of Jonah and said, do not kill us because of him. We don't want to die because... This guy has disobeyed you. And they're like, and they also said, we're going to throw him overboard, but don't blame us. Don't put that on our account that we're going to throw him overboard and get rid of him so that the storm will stop in our lives. So over the side of the ship goes Jonah. And the Bible says immediately the sea calmed. And when that happened, these sailors recognized that the God of the Jews was really the God. And maybe the God is a little, a little overstatement, but they realized at least that he had a lot of power because he caused this storm. And immediately when, when the cause of the storm is thrown overboard, he, he calms everything. And they're, yep, this God is powerful. And the Bible says that they feared exceedingly and they sacrificed to the God of the Jews and they took vows. God does not allow people to stop His process. And so what I would encourage you is this, if you're ever in that situation where somebody's running from God, and, and obviously not literally like Jonah was, but figuratively, don't step in and try to keep them from what God is trying to do in their life. Don't try to keep God from from taking the corrective action, don't step in and say, well, let me just help you out. No, leave them in the hands of God because His purpose and His plan is bigger than your purpose and your plan. He has a desire to bring them back into relationship with Him. Can I get an amen? But God doesn't stop there. Fourth thing He does is if the first plan, the first action doesn't work, He has other things lined up. He takes multiple actions. So as soon as Jonah hits the water, the Bible tells us, now the Lord had prepared a great fish. We see three things in this. Let me actually finish the verse. He had prepared a great fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Now, when I, w- I was doing these sub-points, I'll just be honest with you because, you know, it's always good. And, and I don't want you to miss what I'm doing here because alliteration is, is memorable. My, my last two sub-points started with an S and a P. And so I, got, well, I need to have my first one start with an S and P just so it all lines up. I mean, it looks beautiful on my, my tablet here, so you know. But, but he, what he did, what, he, what this shows us when it says that God prepared a great fish, 
is it shows us his supernatural prognostication. Look at your neighbor and say, prognostication. <laughs> now, I'll just tell you what prognostication is. It comes from Greek, which is prognosis, or to know beforehand. Gnosis is knowledge, pro is beforehand. So God knew beforehand exactly what was going to take place. That he had prepared this great fish. God is not just, he's not casting lots and trying to figure out what, what plan is going to work and, and what action is going to take place. He knows exactly what's going to happen on this ship. He knows that Jonah is coming over the side of the ship. He knows beforehand this is what's going to happen. And so you've got this great fish that God has prepared who's patrolling like a submarine just following along, just looking for an opportunity. And here comes Jonah over the side of the ship and this great fish. Most of the time people say it's a whale. I, I don't really know. The Bible doesn't say. In fact, you know, people want to get, get particular on this and, and they will talk about, well, a fish is not the same as a whale because they're different species. And so I think if I'm not mistaken, a whale is a mammal and it's not a fish. And so it can't be a whale. I don't know, my, I, I've been out of school too long. It's been a long time since I studied my, my science. Is that right? Okay, I'm getting a thumbs up. And so people will say, well, see, it definitely couldn't be a whale, but then the New Testament uses a term for whale and the Old Testament uses a fish. I don't think it matters. It was a big creature that was swimming in the water. And whether God took something that already existed and prepared it and said, now I want you to follow this boat, and when this guy comes over, I want you to swallow. I don't know how he did it. Or maybe he created a, a fish or a large animal that's swimming in the water just for this purpose. I really don't know. But all I know is this, that God knew exactly what was going to happen, and he knew Jonah was coming over the side, and he had a fish prepared to swallow him. And he did, and he was in there for three days. God, who knows before, he has this supernatural preparation. That was number two. He prepared this great fish to swallow Jonah. And then lastly, what we see here in this verse is God's supernatural preservation. There have been stories that people have told of, of people getting swallowed by whales and other animals and and you can find various things out there i don't know if they're, they're true or not I, I really don't know and whatever animal or whatever fish or whale or whatever it was that swallowed various people and they survived for a day or whatever they would come out sometimes they would say they would come out their skin would be a different color from the the acid in the the stomach of these these animals I don't know anything about all of that, but here's what I could tell you. Nobody lives for three days inside of an animal that's swimming under the sea. It's just not possible. There's no food unless you want to eat some raw fish. There's no water except for the salt water, which will kill you in a very short time. But maybe most importantly, there's no oxygen. How are you going to survive with no oxygen for three days? 
The reality is there's only one way for that to happen, and that is because of God's supernatural preservation. That the God who prepared this fish and the God who said for this fish to swallow Jonah supernaturally keeps Jonah alive in the belly of this fish. You see various depictions of this, and Jonah's in a large cavernous area. You know, seaweed here and there, and you got all these things. I don't know what it was like. All I know is this. It's that God supernaturally keeps him alive until he gets him to the point of repentance. If God wanted to kill him, he could have done it before he got on the boat. He could have sank the boat. He wouldn't have prepared a fish. It's not going from bad to worse necessarily. It's going from, I've almost got you to where I want you. And so the reality is we see it going, hey, he's in a storm, and now he's in the water, and now he's in this fish, and it's awful. But ultimately, for his spirituality, it's bringing him, it's getting better and better because it's bringing him to a point of repentance where he's going to say, you know what, enough is enough. I'll, I'll no longer say no. I think it's time for me to say yes. I think it's time for me to repent and call on you and come back to you and do everything that you want me to do. And his, his passage of repentance is nine verses. After he's been in there three days and three nights, he says, the Bible says, and then Jonah prayed to the Lord. It took him a while. I think I'd have been praying long before I got into the fish. I think I'd have recognized on the boat when the lots fell to me, I better repent of this. Jonah was a little more hard-headed than I think I would be, but who knows, maybe I'd have died in the fish. But three days later, he decides that he's going to repent. And when he repents, he says this, he says, Lord, you afflicted me because of my sin. Have the musicians go ahead and come, it's 1133. He says, Lord, you afflicted me because of my sin. I tried, he said, to get away from your presence, but it didn't turn out like I wanted it to. And then he says, I will pay what I have vowed. You hear stories and maybe this is one of those. You hear stories of people, and they get into a bad situation, and they say, God, if you'll get me out of this, I'll do whatever you want me to do. I don't know that you could get into any more difficult of a place than this, knowing that, he said, and in fact, you read his prayer, you know, you have put me out in the deep. You've taken your presence away from me. All of the, I, I tried to get from your presence, and now I can't find it if I want it. But when he says, I will pay what I have vowed, I, I really think what happens is this. That after three days, he says, God, if you'll get me out of here, I'll do exactly what you tell me to do. I'll go to Nineveh. The God who patiently awaits our repentance. He then restores us when we repent. So Jonah, after three days and three nights, he prays. He's not in there another four or five days. But once he repents, he says, God, I'll do what you want me to do. The next verse. So the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah on the dry land it's not to punish you Jonah I'm just trying to bring you back into a 
the right relationship with me. I'm just trying to bring you back to the place where you will obey me, that you will follow my word, you will obey my commands. God waiting on that repentance. And I will tell you that what we see throughout the scripture is this, that divinely caused trouble always comes to an end when people turn back to God. That when they turn to God, if He's the one that's been orchestrating it, He will change the problem. He will take away the trouble. It is the pattern of Israel where they would walk away from God and He would punish them and and then when they finally got around to repenting, sometimes decades later, when they reached that critical mass and they decided they've had enough and they would repent, the Bible says that God, especially in the book of Judges, you hear this all the time, that God heard their cry. And He would send a judge to deliver them out of the land of their affliction. That He would send somebody when they repented and when they turned to Him. In Second Chronicles seven fourteen, one of the most recognized verses in the Old Testament and it's been quoted and, and preached about numerous times since this pandemic hit. But in context, it is this, that Solomon is praying to God at the dedication of the temple. And Solomon knows what God is like. He knows that, that God judges sin. He knows that God punishes sin because he's trying to bring corrective action and he says, God, if you punish us because of our sin, if, if we turn from you and we do something, we worship idols and we do any of those things, he said, if we repent, will you forgive? And Second Chronicles seven fourteen is God's answer to that inquiry. When God says, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray, they will seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Then will I hear from heaven. I will forgive their sins. I will heal their land. And, and I don't think that we have to take that as a national kind of thing or that, that only when our nation's in trouble, whatever nation that happens to be, and in the context of Second Chronicles, it is, it is the Jews, it's Israel. But I think that is applicable to every believer. That Lord, if we call on you, will you forgive? And the answer to that is God will forgive. That he's looking to restore. He's looking to bring people back into relationship with him. When we stumble and fall or when we blatantly disobey, all it takes on our part is a moment of repentance. That's all it takes. All we have to do is say, God, I, I, I'm sorry for what I've done. Or I'm sorry for what I didn't do. And the God who loves us will forgive. He will restore. Aren't you glad that God doesn't leave us on our own, but that He draws us to Him? That He does whatever it takes to get us back to Him. He is a God of reckless love. But there's no mountain too high, no sea too wide, 
no valley too deep that God won't pursue us to bring us into relationship with Him, but He's constantly, when we're walking away from Him, God's running just as fast after us. And in fact, He's going before us to prepare something that will push us back to Him. When God, or when we tell God no, God says, I still want you. I still want to be in relationship with you. I know you said no, but I still want you. I still want you to be my child. I still want to have a relationship with you. Would you stand together? When we fall or when we fail, there is only one action that we should take. And that is to fall on our face and say, God, I'm sorry. And the God of the universe will say, it's all forgiven. I still want you. Regardless of whether it's an accident or its own purpose, He still wants us. He will still pursue us until He brings us to a point of repentance. And the crowd's a little small today because of the weather and some other things. And so I'm going to invite you just to come around the front for a few minutes and you'll be able to stay socially distanced still. But as they sing and play, would you just... One, thank God that He is a God of restoration, that He is a God who restores and desires to be in relationship with us. Would you do that? And if there's anything in your life that you need to clear out, all He's he's waiting on your moment of repentance. He's waiting on you just to say, God, I'm sorry. Bring me back to you. Would you worship? Would you ask the Lord those things right now as they sing? God, we love you today. Thank you for who you are. Thank you, Lord, that when we say no, you still pull for us. You still draw us to you. You still want us in relationship with you. You don't walk away.
thank you for who you are. Thank you for your power, your presence. Thank you for what you have done in us, Lord. We thank you, Lord, that you brought us to that initial place of repentance. That initial place, Lord, where we would turn our lives to you. That initial place where we would choose to follow you, to serve you, to give ourselves to you completely. Thank you, Lord, for that. God, I pray not only for that, but every time we stumble, every time we fall, every time we fail, Lord, let our hearts turn back to you. Let our attitude be to turn back to you. Let us be like David and have a heart that is after yours. Lord, where we seek to repent, we seek to come back into relationship with you. That nothing would keep us from an eternity with you. Lord, work in us. And Lord, I pray one final prayer today. And that is this, Lord, that what we have experienced, we would take to others. You haven't saved us for ourselves, Lord, alone, but you have saved us for your purpose, for your plan. You have saved us so that we could bring others into your kingdom. You have saved us so that we could be salt and light and that others would see you and us and they would want what we have. They would want to experience a relationship with you. They would want to experience your salvation. They would want to experience the peace and the joy and the love and all of the things that come with your divine favor and blessings. Lord, I pray that nothing would hinder us from reaching others with the gospel. That as this song said about you, that there's nothing that will stand in your way. God, I pray that nothing would stand in our way of reaching our friends, our family, our neighbors, our co-workers, and anybody else we come in contact with. Nothing would stand in our way of telling them about you and about what they can have when they come into relationship with you. Lord, unlike Jonah, we would never express that we don't want to see others saved. But our actions sometimes, Lord, will say it for us. Lord, let nothing stand in our way. No pride. No possible humiliation. No rejection. Let nothing stand in our way of fulfilling what you have called us to do. And that is to make disciples everywhere that we go. Lord, I pray that you would empower your people this week to to fulfill your command be with them let your presence be evident in all that they do give them your strength your favor your blessings we thank you for it Lord and we give you praise and everybody said amen